the Irish Times business podcast in association with Irish Life. Supporting companies and their employees for 75 years. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Business Podcast. This is Wednesday, February 24th. I'm Kieran Hancock. And on this week's show, we'll be pondering the implications of Brexit for British and Irish businesses. And we'll be getting the latest from the criminal trial of four former executives with Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Life and Permanent. And don't forget, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, which will deliver it to your device each week for free. We'll start, first of all, with Brexit. British Prime Minister David Cameron has set June 23rd as the date for a referendum on the UK's membership of the EU. London Mayor Boris Johnson has shown a support behind the Leave campaign, along with about half of Tory MPs. But what's the view of Britain's business community? Joining me on the line is Irish journalist Joe Lynham, a business correspondent with the BBC, and I'm joined in studio by Arthur Beasley, economics editor of the Irish Times. Uh, Joe, thank you for joining us. Uh, we might just start with you. And a number of the, a large number of the FTSE 100 companies uh, signed a letter supporting Britain's membership of the EU and a number of... Uh, Chief executives and other senior business figures signed in a personal capacity as well. But there probably wasn't as many as was originally thought. And a number of companies such as Sainsbury's, Tesco's, Lloyd's, Banking Group and Barclays didn't sign this letter. Um, so what's what's your take on, on the support or otherwise from British business of Britain remaining in the EU? I think big business is very much in the remain side of the argument, uh, affectionately known as Remainians from now onwards. Um, big business, because uh, it, it may be listed in London, it, it is not representative of the UK populace or the wider UK economy. So the companies that you mentioned who are not keen to sign, such as Tesco and Sainsbury's, they are very much retailers and they are focused on consumers in Britain. And so they do not want to antagonize one side or the other by coming out with a view. As for Lloyds Bank, which is very much a domestic-focused retail bank, it is split. I know for a fact that the chairman, Lord Blackwell, is dead set against against. Um, the European Union and wants to leave, a Brexiteer for the want of a better phrase, whereas many of his executive team, including the chief executive who's a Portuguese, wishes to remain in the European Union. So that's just three companies. The majority of big businesses um, in the UK, big listed companies in the FTSE 100, the 100 largest companies listed in, in Britain, do wish to remain. Many are sitting on the fence. But to get a third of the FTSE 100 companies to put their name to a letter is quite a feat, actually. It's very rare that they all agree on anything, but a third of them do agree and very publicly advocate a stance. And what's the view within the City of London, Joe? The City of London um, is mostly in favour of remaining in. There are those in the hedge fund community, um, mostly based in Mayfair in West, in the West End, uh, often known as hedgerow, they tend to prefer the independence of being outside the European Union. They think they could be uh, a Geneva on Thames or a Zurich on Thames or a Liechtenstein on Thames. And they think that possibly it's better to uh, jump out. Also, they can't be controlled as easily by uh, Europe-wide rules, is their belief. But banks big insurance companies, big pension funds, big houses that manage large, high net worth individuals' money normally prefer to remain within the European Union. And the reason for that is pretty clear. Um, passporting 
you cannot sell a financial service elsewhere in the European Union unless you're in the central and the single market. And that is thank, thanks to a system called passporting, which allows you to sell insurance or current accounts or whatever it is in any other member state without having to set up a permanent establishment there. You can set up a branch there, you can set up an office there, and you usually do, but you don't have to send an army of people there. You can be based in London and sell your wares throughout the single market. Right, Arthur, I might come to you because you did a, a survey for the Irish Times of attitudes among Irish businesses towards Brexit. Uh, what did you find out? Um, I think, Karen, I think the overwhelming view is that uh, people in business in Ireland would rather like Britain to stay in the EU. Uh, I think there's a view that uh, any Brexit, no matter how it was negotiated in the two years after a vote to leave, uh, would uh, present a whole multitude, if you like, of new risks and uncertainties uh, that people really would rather not have to confront uh, in an economy which is still in recovery after uh, a huge crash. Yeah. Ironically enough, Joe, uh, just coming back to yourself, on Tuesday, the London Stock Exchange announced a merger plan with Deutsche Börse, uh, which would actually see the German exchange become a majority shareholder, have a controlling stake in that merged entity. Yeah, that's a very interesting play. It's not the first time uh, that the London Stock Exchange has spoken to other exchanges. Indeed, it spoke to the Deutsche Börse before as well, and that merger didn't go ahead. So we cannot and should not assume that, that it will go ahead. It is interesting, um, and I think quite a few Brexiteers would be shocked at the idea of a German stock exchange taking over the venerable London Stock Exchange. Remember, though, the London Stock Exchange represents mostly non-UK listed companies. Most of the companies listed um, uh, on the exchange are, have most of their activities outside the United Kingdom. They love being listed in London because it gives them a huge pool of cash, investments, markets, liquidity, as it's called in the trade. So they like being listed here, but they may have very little to do with Betty and Brighton or Stephen Sheffield. Yeah. Actually, Arthur, just pick up on that point. There's a number of Irish companies that are listed uh, on the London Stock Exchange, like Paddy Power, Betfair, uh, DCC. DCC, Grafton Group. And Investec put out a, a note this morning, the stockbroker, uh, just teasing out some of the implications for some of these listed companies with operations in the UK. Tell us about that. That's right. Well, I mean, uh, I mean, they're saying there are some potential Irish winners uh, uh, on the basis that sterling will continue to weaken, and it has been weakening this week, ever since Boris Johnson came out and said he be advocating for Britain to leave uh, and that was seen to give some uh, headwinds if you like to the to the leave campaign um, but uh, Investec in its note says that uh, you know there are obvious winners in this scenario and these are Irish companies reporting in sterling with significant earnings in euro and they cite Paddy Power Betfair the newly enlarged entity as well as DCC and Grafton. I think where companies are really assessing the Brexit question, are there companies with large British businesses? Where you have Irish companies which have a lot, a great deal of their revenues coming from Britain, are there profits? This matter is under discussion at the level of the board and people are taking on board what is happening. Uh, for all of that, though, uh, there are others who would say it's a non-issue for them. And you know, I spoke to someone in, in, in business in, in recent days who said that some people see it as uh, being akin to the Y2K question, which we saw in, at the end of 1999, where there was a whole kerfuffle around this uh, technological risk around the transfer of software into the new millennium, and nothing actually happened, and it turned out to be a bit of a puff of smoke. <laughs> 
Yeah. Joe, on the sterling issue, it's uh, I see today it's trading below uh, $1.39, which is kind of un- uncharted territory for us over the past 30 years or so. Is there much concern uh, in Britain about this? Are we at currency crisis levels uh, almost? Well, let's see, Britain is mostly... Uh, a services-led economy. It mostly sells people's brain power overseas. It doesn't sell that many physical products as a proportion of its economy. So when people say, okay, a weak sterling is going to be great for exporters, yes, it it definitely will be great for exporters. But that is only 10% of the British economy. 70% is services. So if you are in the business of advising, if you're in the media business, if you're in the banking business, the insurance business, um, consultancy business, accountancy business, you like a stable currency. You want to know what, your, what the money that you will get once you've provided your, um, your service, what that money will be. So you would rather it be stable. Um, as to whether you benefit from it being cheap now, possibly in the short term, but remember, you're always paid after you've done the work. And then there's the ongoing consultancy fees, and they can go up and down, as you know. Um, so uh, it, it's, it's six, six of one and half a dozen of the other. Yeah. Joe, I can understand why, you know, the man on the street uh, might have concerns about being a member of the European Union. You know, if you're on welfare or you're in a low paid position, you might have issues around migrants coming into the country or welfare payments to foreign nationals and all of that kind of stuff. But why would businesses not want to be in the EU? After all, it gives you access to a market of 500 million people. Um, and it's been largely positive for Britain over the years, hasn't it? Uh, again, it depends on the size of the company. We've already discussed how big, big listed companies are, are in the main prefer to remain in the European Union. If you are a small mom and pop operation or a very small family run business, you take a very personal view in these things. And you may have formed the view um, that there's a lot of bureaucracy from membership of the European Union. You may have formed the view that you're being bullied by Brussels. You may have read articles in the Express and the Mail uh, about bendy bananas being banned and all that kind of stuff. And you may think that you are swamped with rules and regulations, which will not be the case in your mind if Britain were to leave. Um, And if you do not export anywhere uh, from Britain, then uh, the European Union can only be seen as a source of red tape for you. But in the main, if you employ 50 or more and you sell produce overseas, uh, especially in uh, the EU, then you will feel the benefit because you don't have to fill any any forms like you did uh, 20, 30 years ago to sell into Bulgaria or Ireland or Denmark or Poland. You just sell your goods. And if it meets your local regulator's standard, then it meets the European standard, the reciprocity, I can't even pronounce it, reciprocity rule, uh, which allows companies from Poland or Portugal to sell their goods. Once they're approved by their local regulator, they can sell it anywhere in the European Union. Uh, Joe, uh, Enda Kenny, our Taoiseach, in the middle of a general election campaign here, of course, um, he has said that if Britain were to leave the EU, it wouldn't have any implications for Irish people looking to go and work uh, in Britain or indeed for our Irish businesses looking to trade with Britain. Uh, I mean, is that actually true? Is, can, he, can he say that with confidence? He can with a certain amount, actually, because since the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, um, British people are, are treated, in effect, like Irish people in Ireland, and Irish people are treated, in effect, uh, as British people in Britain. So, uh, in the forthcoming referendum, um, my wife, who's Estonian, an EU member state, cannot vote 
but I can because I'm an Irish passport holder, an Irish citizen. Um, so in, in terms of that side of things, it's not going to change much if Britain leaves. You can, there's, there's a free travel area. I do not need to bring a passport with me when I travel from London to Dublin. Uh, which I do on a regular basis. And the same applies if you're traveling from Ireland to Britain. You just show some sort of photo ID, which is usually your driving license. Well, you so clearly don't it, travel on Ryanair because I think they have a strict passport policy. Uh, well, that's against the law. It's a free travel area. Right, okay. Um, and there has been some talk here that perhaps uh, Britain leaving the EU might be a positive for Ireland in the sense that we might get some foreign direct investment here that uh, might otherwise have gone to the UK or that some UK companies, particularly financial services companies, might relocate to Ireland. Are you getting any sense of that? I am. Um, I, I, if you're in the financial services sector um, I, in, the, in the UK and you're a big company, you almost certainly are working on a contingency plan as we speak. If you're a giant, giant bank and you're worried about the impact, because remember, if Britain does vote to leave, it won't be a one or two year negotiation. It's more like going to be a five or seven year negotiation, in which point you don't know what the shape will be of a post-Brexit United Kingdom. So if you're in the financial services business and you need the passporting that is allowed in the single market, you might look seriously now at uh, moving some or a part of your operations to Dublin, Frankfurt, Paris, but certainly Dublin. It's in GMT. It's got the language skills. It's got uh, a very similar legal system inherited in 1922, and it has a talented workforce. So I think the real winners uh, from the financial services side of things, if Britain were to leave, would be landlords and uh, people who own large swathes of uh, property in Dublin. Arthur, what do you think about the potential for Ireland to attract uh, FDI from the UK if, if they were to leave the EU? I, I think there's potential for some for some modest gain, but uh, one wonders really because uh, I mean it, it all depends on what the what the exit terms are and what the countries remaining in the EU on what basis they are willing to continue to do business with. Britain and companies based in Britain. Now, you could say they're all going to be very pragmatic and they're going to decide that it's in everyone's interest to have minimal disruption and uh, a very, very clear line of trade, communication, legal lines, uh, everything that, that, fl that flows with business connections. Now, if that happens, well, then the disruption, it seems to me, is going to be minimal enough, notwithstanding the, this whole question around passporting and all the rest of it. If, however, it turns out to be a conflictual exit, one in which there is no agreement at the very end, and one in which, which raises the prospect of trade tariffs and all the rest of it, which most business people don't actually believe will happen, well then, it seems to me that any uplift by way of FDI into the Irish economy would be overshadowed by the downside, which would be a marked deterioration in, in trade and which would be the nightmare scenario, if you like. And what about cross-border trade, Arthur, between Ireland, uh, between the Republic and Northern Ireland? How would that be affected? Well, I think that's a big issue. I mean, uh, w w one business person who, who responded to our, sur our survey expressed concern about the notion of uh, repartition emerging on the Isle of Arda because you've got to remember that the issue presented by a Brexit is that you would have an external border of the European Union running right through the island of Ireland. And 
That, in turn, raises a whole multitude of questions around what exactly happens as people go over the roads on the border counties. And you have what is, in effect, a very integrated regional economy in which most of the companies on the border on both sides do trade with each other. So there's a very big problem there which has to be surmounted. Now, it's not beyond the the wit of humankind to conceive of a scenario in which Uh, people arriving onto the island of Ireland with the intention of going either north or south or whatever, that they would go through whatever passport controls uh, would be required, meaning that there is no effective repartition as is feared, but that would still have to be worked out. Yeah, Joe, have you any sense that passport controls or border controls might be reintroduced in Ireland if Britain were to leave the EU? I think the political will in London is that that would not be the case. Uh, I think the last thing David Cameron needs right now is a, a restarting of violence in the north of Ireland. Um, the, he's already trying to trim the budgets uh, in Northern Ireland. He really doesn't want to have any more issues. The traditional policy in London has been to throw a wall of money at Northern Ireland to keep it quiet. Uh, I suspect that will continue. Uh, and in a post-Brexit environment, and let's be honest, it may be without the services of David Cameron, he may have to resign uh, if there is a, a, a leave vote. Uh, even his successor will probably uh, want some sort of continuation of the calmness and serenity, be that uh, in a mild sense, um, that we have seen of the last whatever 15, 20 years. Yeah. There's a regional aspect to this, Joe, a very interesting one, I think, because the UK is essentially for four countries in one, if you like, uh, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and each one might have a different view of whether Britain should stay in the EU or not. I mean, for example, in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon has made it clear that if there was a leave uh, vote, that Scotland there would be a push on for another independence referendum in Scotland. Scotland very much wants, uh, as she tells it, very much wants to be a part of the EU. Uh, in Northern Ireland, we have a situation where the DUP has just come out and, uh, well, Nigel Dodds and some other senior members are, are very much opposed uh, to being part of the EU. They think they should leave. Uh, Sinn Féin and others think they should stay. I don't know what the situation is in Wales, and, of course, England's a bit of a melting pot. So how do you see that figuring in the whole debate uh, in the run-up to the June referendum? Yeah, um, the situation in Northern Ireland is, is unclear because every polling that I've seen has suggested that Northern Ireland as a province would vote to remain, irrespective of what the DUP says, um, unless, of course, they all vote with their party, and that may not be the case. Um, uh, Wales, almost certainly, because it's so dependent on CAP and Category 1 money from Brussels, will vote to remain. And I haven't seen a single poll suggesting that Scotland uh, would vote to leave. Uh, Every single poll suggests that they want uh, to remain within the European Union. The SNP are heading for another landslide uh, election victory in May in the Scottish elections, the Holyrood elections, which will really matter. Um, So you could have a situation whereby the votes in England will drag Northern Ireland, Wales and Scotland out of the European Union, which I think would trigger calls, at least, for another referendum. Now, I don't know how that would vote, uh, that vote could go, but you could have a very serious situation whereby uh, people who say they love the United Kingdom being independent would actually break up the United Kingdom. I'll give you one uh, final anecdote. As a Scottish friend of mine, a very passionate lawyer, very passionate independence voter, based in London, has been uh, an England-based uh, taxpayer for a long time. He said he's going to vote for Brexit in order to trigger a Scottish referendum again. Wow. 
That's interesting. There's also another curious element to it as well. We talked about uh, possibly border controls being reinstituted in Northern Ireland. Um, but could we see a situation where duty-free is uh, reintroduced across the Irish Sea? What do you think? I wouldn't have a clue about that. I would say that's low down the pecking order of stuff to be established. Um, put it this way, the Foreign Secretary here in the UK, Philip Hammond, who is not seen as a pro-European, he was, he was often regarded as a, a Brexiteer, and then changed his mind in the last few weeks and months. He said, in the negotiation, in a post-Brexit negotiation, it won't be in Germany or Italy or France's interests to do an easy deal with Britain, as the, um, uh, as the Brexiteers are advocating. He said that why would the Germans give Britain an easy trade deal uh, when it will only stir up other countries in the European Union to also want to leave, and it could break up the European Union. And the Germans do not want that at any cost. There are already moves afoot in the Netherlands for them to have a referendum on, uh, on their membership of the European Union. So the thinking is, amongst the establishment at least, that um, Britain won't get a soft deal post-Brexit. Arthur, what do you think? Those halcyon days of uh, travelling to Hollyhead for the cheap booze, will they return? Well, uh, they might not be high up the pecking order, but certainly in Vestec in its note this morning, this is in the name of Gerard Moore and Philip O'Sullivan, uh, posits the possible reintroduction of duty-free trade, and they say that the Irish Continental Group, that's the ferry operator, would be a big winner, and that back in the day, when we did have uh, duty-free, that about half its profit came from uh, the sale of cheap booze and tobacco on the ferries. Well, that might be the silver lining in the cloud for for Michael O'Leary as well, Reiner. Uh, finally, Joe, we just finish on this. I know there's still a long way to go uh, towards the referendum and there will be a lot of twists and turns on the road to polling day. But uh, as we sit here now, what, what's your gut instinct on this? Will, uh, will people in, in the UK vote to stay or leave? I think it'd be very close. I think it would be similar to Scotland. In fact, I'd say in the run-up to this thing, there will be a, an odd poll showing that the leave side could win it. I think the city of London will panic. I think Stirling will continue to weaken. But I do think that ultimately the Brits always vote for the status quo. They have done so for the last 40 or 50 years when given a chance to change something, British people shy away. And if it's a tight, really close vote, what are the chances of a second referendum? Never end them. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. It depends on what happens to the Tory party, to be honest with you. This could seriously damage the Conservatives. They could split. Remember, within a decade of the last referendum, Labour split. The SDP was formed and Labour were out of power for almost 25 years. It is not infeasible, it is not unfeasible that the Conservatives would split. A quarter could go to UKIP, a quarter could form a new party and half the rump uh, would remain uh, as the mainstream Conservative Party. And whether they drift to the centre or drift to the right is unclear. But it will really, really damage the Tories if the sniping and uh, counter-briefing continues as it started in the first five days. Yeah, it will also take away the prospect of a, a single government, a single party government in Britain for years to come, I would have thought. Don't rule out a Prime Minister Corbyn in 2020. That is something that would have been laughed about a few months ago, even a few weeks ago. But if you've got a completely... Sp- split Tory party, who knows where it goes. Remember, John Major's government, because it was so split over Europe, was savaged in the 1997 general election. 
Arthur? Um, well, one recalls David Cameron and the, as he won election first time around, saying he wasn't going to have a have a government which was uh, mired in bus stops over Europe. So um, plainly, the situation has changed since. I think it's also important to 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 note that no matter what happens in the actual referendum itself, we're going to see a lot of volatility on financial markets because the markets. No one can predict with any accuracy what exactly is going to happen, and we're already seeing this that this week in terms of. Volatility. Volatility. I think there are concerns in the business community around transactions maybe not going ahead, around delays to capital projects. And uh, I mean, really, I mean, if you were about to take out a very large loan from a very large bank to fund a very large project, and you were planning to do that in May maybe of this year, wouldn't you be inclined to wait and see what happens in the referendum? Before you I, 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 would add, I would echo that. In fact, I think there will be something of a serious pause in FDI into the UK over the next four and a half months. Well, okay. On that note, Joe Lynham and Arthur Beasley, thank you for joining us. We're, we're going to take a short break now and we're going to return with the latest on the criminal trial involving former Anglo and Irish Life and Permanent Executives. At Irish Life, we can tell you that 49% of employees in Ireland don't think about tomorrow. They don't have a pension plan. We can help you help them. Because if you're involved in running your company's pension plan, we can administer it for you. With our member-specific investment solutions, online access for employers, trustees and members, and always on smartphone apps. Just call one of our corporate team on 01704-1845. Visit irishlifecorporatebusiness.ie or contact your pension consultant to find out how we can help your company think of tomorrow. We know Irish Life. We are Irish Life. Irish Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. All information source for Irish Life, September 2014. Now, welcome back to the Irish Times Business Podcast. I'm Kieran Hancock, and let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes for free. That'll deliver it to your device each week, meaning you never miss an episode. Now, in this segment, we're going to look back at the ongoing trial of four former executives of Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Life and Permanent. They're accused of misleading investors in relation to interbank loans worth €7.2 billion in the period before the financial crash in 2008. Declan Brennan, news editor of court reporting agency CCC Nooks, has been covering the case, and he joins us on the line. Uh, Declan, thank you for joining us. And uh, perhaps uh, just to kick it off, for the benefit of listeners, you might remind us who exactly is on trial and the charges they're facing. Hi, Kieran. Yes, there's four former banking executives who are on trial. They are, um, some of these names will be known to your listeners, and some of them won't. Uh, Anglo's former head of finance, Willie McAteer, um, Irish Life and Permanence, uh, then CEO, Dennis Casey, um, also from uh, Anglo at the time, uh, John Bow, um, he was the head of capital markets then, and Peter Fitzpatrick, who was the um, director of finance with Irish Life and Permanence at the time. And they're all charged with uh, conspiring to mislead investors by using, uh, essentially by using interbank loans to make the bank look better than it was uh, at the time. Uh, it is alleged that they made the bank appear and they conspired to make the bank appear 7.2 billion euros more valuable um, than it was. And that they did this on uh, between March and September 2008. Okay, and of course, 2008 was the crucial year when global financial markets uh, crashed and yeah, when the bank guarantee was introduced. Absolutely. 
the bank guarantee was produced uh, on September the 30th, and that happened to be the crucial day here in this case, and we keep hearing about it, because that is the day on which Anglo would make their end-of-year accounts and they would produce a snapshot of how healthy the bank is. Like any business and any bank, they would have a... um, they would have to report to the market uh, and this report would be based on their accounts on a certain date. And it is alleged that they were making these loans, uh, what is allegedly back-to-back loans with Irish Life and Impermanent, um, and they were making them so that they would, the money would be sitting in their accounts uh, on that date and then they would give that money back to Irish Life and Permanent. Sure, and it was to flatter Anglo's uh, balance sheet uh, at the year end effectively. Yes, we've heard the phrase balance sheet manipulation and this is allegedly what um, some of the people involved and some of the witnesses that have been called to the trial um, were, have said that they were doing that. They actually uh, used this phrase to the financial regulator. Okay, now we should say, uh, state, before we go into some of the details of the case of what you've heard in court, we should state that each of the four men has pleaded not guilty, isn't that right? That's absolutely the case, yes. Yeah, okay. So, uh, Declan, you were in court today. What, uh, what, what were the main takeaways? Well, uh, I suppose, well, actually today, I'm afraid, um, it's been a legal argument. Um, and, I mean, it's not the first time that this trial has gone into legal argument, which is a normal course of events for such a lengthy trial and such a complex trial. Um, but we have had some evidence this week, of course, um, and we've heard uh, from Kieran McArdle, who was with Anglo, um, at the time, and he was a, a trader, a dealer with, with the bank. Uh, we've heard before that he was involved um, in September with um, essentially uh, putting these, these uh, transactions through. There's no question that the, the transactions did take place, that um, there was a transaction between the bank and Irish Life and Permanent, between Anglo and Irish Life and Permanent. The question is obviously whether it amounts to a criminal charge as alleged. So Kieran McArdle uh, gave evidence and uh, he was saying that this was a tough time to work at Anglo uh, back in, uh, in 2008 because obviously this is all, and the jury have heard that this is all in the context of the financial cra- uh, crisis and that the banks like Lehman's, uh, massive banks around the world were just crashing like dominoes. And uh, Mr. McArdle said there was a huge stress on the bank and that they were fielding 20,000 phone calls from customers concerned about their deposits at this time. He even said that there was a rumour and there was a worry that hedge funds were going to hire a rent-a-crowd to queue outside the bank to give an impression of a run on the bank. Yeah, it's quite extraordinary stuff, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I, I mean, there, was, um, there were fears, even uh, back in back as uh, early as March 2008 when we had what was dubbed the St. Patrick's Day Massacre. Um, the, with the, that was the day that a, a lot of um, stock sh- went, hit the bottom and uh, Anglo's uh, stock price uh, certainly dipped quite a lot um, that it crashed, day. It came yeah. back, it recovered a little bit by the end of the day, but it certainly had dipped. And there were rumours back then that these hedge funds uh, were circling, I suppose, um, um, around, and that they had a sniff that there was there were issues in Anglo, and the jury have heard all this. Yeah. Now, the so-called Green Jersey agenda has come up. Tell us about that. Yes, well, uh, this is, um, uh, has come up a number of times um, as a question that has been asked by the barristers defending the four men. Uh, they've put it to a number of witnesses uh, that... Um, 
this uh, level of cooperation that was existing between Anglo-Irish Bank and Irish Life and Permanent um, was part of the Green Jersey agenda. So um, uh, the jury have seen on um, emails, uh, transcripts of emails. I wanted to actually, uh, just as an aside, one of the interesting things about this trial is the level of technology that's been used to uh, get the evidence across. So you've got uh, the jury are looking at a lot of the evidence on computer screens, looking at transcripts of emails. Obviously, when the investigators went in, they... uh, uh, would have seized all this information. And they've also heard a lot of uh, recordings uh, of telephone calls because all of the telephone calls would have been recorded in the bank. Um, but back to the Green Jersey agenda, um, uh, we'd have seen an email from David Drum to uh, uh, many of the personnel in Anglo. Okay, David uh, Drum, of course, being the former CEO of Anglo. Absolutely, yes. And um, his name's come up a number of times, obviously, naturally enough. And um, uh, he is talking about um, a conversation he had with um, uh, the central bank and uh, the request from the central bank for uh, Irish banks to work with each other and to support each other. And uh, the barristers uh, have asked witnesses, is that what was meant by the Green Jersey agenda? And they've said in hindsight, they certainly they've understood that's what was the Green Jersey agenda. This was an uh, effect uh, it's also been described as "quote unquote" charity beginning at home. So basically, um, they're saying that the the banks were being asked to help each other out in this in this crucial time of uh, liquidity crisis when when banks around the world couldn't get liquidity because as of mid 2007, the bottom had fallen out of the financial market uh, in, in the West. Okay, so Anglo couldn't get access to funds internationally and uh, essentially it was looking to its fellow domestic banks to give it a dig out. Yeah, a bank can't survive unless it can get funds, unless it can pay its day-to-day uh, requirements. And uh, even apart from even paying them uh, what, it, what, what it's been asked to pay, unless, uh, there is obviously a necessity for a bank as well to have, there's a statutory necessity and a regulatory necessity for a bank to have a certain liquidity ratio. That essentially means that the bank needs to be able to show to the, to the governing bodies that if everybody came to us uh, next week or in eight days' time or in 30 days' time and asked us for a money, that we would eventually be able to get it within uh, eight days or 30 days' time. Those, those time schedules are technical uh, issues sure. for the bank. But certainly there's a certain level of money a bank has to have at, or a certain, a certain level of access to money that a bank has to have at all times. And this was, getting prov- this was proving harder to be the case uh, for all banks uh, at this time, the court has heard. Yeah, this has been heard before a, a jury. We have a judge as well, obviously, but it's been heard before a, a jury. How technical is it and, and how easy or difficult do you think it is for them to uh, understand the nuances of all of this? Well, it's it's very technical. Um, I mean, juries are um, always regarded as very robust in this country uh, and, and that's repeatedly been stated in law. Um, so, I mean, it's a very technical trial. Uh, some of the evidence is very uh, detailed and, um, uh, dare I say, plodding. But, uh, I mean, I, I think that's a given. I mean, it's, we've got a five-month trial. I suppose we're, what, nearly five weeks into it now. Um, and what the state has done and what the courts have done in order to uh, facilitate any issues that might arise with the jury maybe becoming um, 
any issues at all, I suppose, is that unusually for a trial, we've got 15 members on this jury uh, rather than it would normally be 12 uh, um, members of um, our peers that would be judging the case. But because this trial is so long, we've had we've three extra subs, as it were. So um, uh, what will happen at the end of the trial, at the, evi- at the end of the evidence, is if that 15 are still standing, uh, three of them will just fall away and 12 will go into the jury room to adjudicate. Well, that's a, that's an interesting uh, twist. In five months, it's extraordinary, really. And it's taken over seven years for us to reach this point. Um, has it emerged in the trial as to precisely why it has taken so long uh, for, for it to come to trial, for these charges actually to come into court? Hasn't really come out. I mean, I, I don't think uh, it's... I think it's fair to say that... Um, it's a sim- it's, it's a issue with the complexity of the of the investigation, and obviously uh, the jury are seeing that there's a huge paper trail involved here, uh, so a huge amount of evidence that needs to be sifted through. Okay, who are we expecting to hear from uh, later this week? Well, we know Matt Moran, who from Anglo, um, will be coming up in the next uh, number of weeks. Um, but as of that, uh, they're keeping their cards fairly close to their chest. And will we be hearing from the central bank? Um, I, from the jury would have heard a list of witnesses at the beginning of the trial, and uh, as far as I understand it, there were no witnesses uh, listed from the central bank or the financial regulator. Mm, right. Okay. And what about the four men themselves? Will we be hearing from them? Well, I mean, it's they're entitled to give evidence, and they're also entitled not to give evidence, um, and uh, the jury can't take any inference from that. Um, so, I mean, time time will tell, really, in that regard. Okay, uh, so five months. So it sounds as if a verdict could come after the summer. Well, I mean, it's it's um, we're looking at uh, mid May for the evidence on from both sides to finish. Um, so, I mean, we're looking for the jury to, for to go to the jury uh, in mid May. So yeah, we could have a verdict. Okay, so we could have a... all, if it all goes according to plan and. Um, Often these things don't. Yeah, yeah, and there have been some stoppages for legal arguments, as you mentioned, haven't there? Yeah, and of course that's that's all part and parcel with any trial. I mean, even in a in a four day, three day robbery trial, uh, you might get half a day of legal arguments. So you can imagine with a, a five month trial, um, it, it's proportionally you're looking at you know a, a good number of weeks of legal argument. It's just the way these things are, um, but. Um, I suppose the defence have set out their case from the get-go uh, in terms of um, their cross-examination of uh, the witnesses and uh, in terms of um, them contextualising this situation between the two banks as uh, something that happened within a liquidity crisis, uh, something they've said they've uh, variously uh, asked witnesses to comment on whether they had any issues with the transactions witnesses a number of witnesses said they had no issues at the time and they didn't feel there was anything wrong with the transactions. OK, Declan, uh, well, look, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, obviously, some time to go in that trial. Uh, Declan Brennan uh, from CCC Nooks, thank you for joining us. OK, that's it for this week from the Irish Times Business Podcast. My thanks to Joe Lynham of the BBC and to Arthur Beasley and Declan Brennan of CCC Nooks. Declan Conlon produced the show with JJ Vernon as sound engineer. Don't forget, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our business today. Email at irishtimes.com. You can also fo- uh, follow the Irish Times Business Feed on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.